0: Bibles. Listen for the word of God to you. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit. Who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, a persecutor of the church, as for righteousness based on the law, flawless. But whatever gains I have, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I can consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found with him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ and know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Be Let us pray. O oh Lord, we come to you today confessing our own crummy spirituality, confessing how we have been satisfied with crumbs from others, and we have given crumbs to others. Help us to feast on the feast that you have prepared for us as our good shepherd. Help us to feast on the power of the resurrection. Lord, any words that I say that are not of your will I ask that they fall to the ground and be forgotten, but whatever I say that is of your will, I ask that embed in hearts and bear good fruit unto the kingdom of God. Lord, let us not hinder your word, but feed your sheep, in Jesus' name, amen. As always, I have an outline of the sermon on the back of your bulletins, if you like to follow along. So, I was listening to a, a podcast called Hidden Brain, the author of which is Shankar Vedantam, and he was describing social science research on the positives and the negatives of implicit egotism, otherwise uh, known as narcissism. Now, narcissism is generally not thought of as a good thing most of the time, but you need a little bit of it. I mean, Jesus says we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and if we don't love ourselves... It's pretty hard to love our neighbors elsewhere science and social science shows that what makes for a healthy relationship a healthy relation a healthy healthy marriage is common values seeing ourselves in others so there's something to be said about seeing ourselves in others but there's also a danger to it when we can see unhealthy aspects of ourselves in others and be attracted to that are when we can see things that have nothing to do with a successful relationship. For example, studies show that often people um, get in relationships with people who have the same birthday as them, if not the exact same month. People are attracted to people who have a similar sounding name, are, are at the exact same name. Implicit egotism is often seen in what's called the Ikea effect. Have any of you been to the new Ikea store around? A couple of people. It's pretty impressive. I went over there, and it it is very nice, and there's a great Swedish um, cafeteria, and I was really impressed. But as the actress Amy Poehler points out, Ikea can be Swedish for argument, it can cause a lot of arguments and relationships. Why? Because we fall in love with our own creation. Now, certainly, the furniture is cheaper because you put it together yourself. That's the business model. But if you're not super great at putting it together yourself, this can cause a little conflict in that the partner who puts it together themselves can be so impressed with their own creation, their own Confidence, their own rightness that they don't, don't see that maybe it's a little askew. This is what's called the IKEA effect when we fall in love with our own creation. As I was think, thinking about this research, I was thinking, oh, this is so, you know, I'm so glad that I'm so spiritually aware that I'm not attracted to someone because their name sounds like myself and I, I'm not putting confidence in my own creation. And then I realized I did exactly what this study said, like, to the letter. In, in college, my fourth year in college, I roomed with a guy whose name was Will. Now, I thought I, I would have justified at the time by saying, oh, we'll be great friends, we're going to get along. He's friends with me on Facebook, but I've a thousand friends on Facebook, so that means something a little different. And I have to be honest that the main reason I wanted to live with him, because I thought it was amusing because he had my same name. Of course, I was Will number one. He was Will number two. And we, and we uh, wanted some more space in our um, dorm room to sit in, so I got a futon. It wasn't a nice Ikea futon. And we put it together. What happens when an English major named Will and a government major named Will put together a futon? It takes a long time. <laughs> that, that, that's what, what happens. But when we were done, I was so infatuated with my creation, and I sat on it all the time, and it wasn't super comfortable. Gotta be honest with that. It was sort of a crummy futon. But I carried that futon with me. I carried that futon with me when I graduated uh, from college and moved back to Harrisonburg for a summer. When I went to seminary in Richmond, I carried that futon with me. And when I graduated seminary, I carried it to the first townhouse. I lived in that a friend let me rent a room from. And it was a super nice townhouse. Probably one of the nicest places I ever lived. And I carried that old metal futon with me. And finally, my landlord and friend had to say, well, you can't bring this into my house. It doesn't, it doesn't fit here. It's a pretty crummy futon. And I, I couldn't see the imperfection of my own creation I had created it. It was a sign of my competence to others, my, my rightness to others, and I couldn't see that it didn't fit where I was living, and I was carrying it with me. I think we all face that. My, my, my crummy fut- futon is symbolic of crummy theology, of crummy spirituality, and we all face that desire to be right in front of others. And it can lead us down the wrong path, as it led Paul down the wrong path. And he says, I don't want to trust anymore in my own rightness. I want to trust in the power of the resurrection. And the good news today is when we repent of our crummy spirituality, we will be revived by the power of the resurrection Well, how do we repent of our crummy spirituality? Well, we have to first know what that entails. Recently, I read a book recommended by a friend named Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by a pastor named Peter Scazzaro. And he lays out 10 criteria for crummy spirituality and how to move beyond that. And here's what they are. The first is using God to run from God. This is especially common common with seminary students. It's when we use God and the idea of serving God, not to serve others or to serve God, but to escape from our own pain. We read a lot of theological books. We use a lot of religious language because we don't want to deal with our own pain. Second is ignoring anger, sadness, and fear. This is when we don't allow room in our spiritual communities to talk about how we're feeling. To quote Skisero, to feel is to be human. To minimize or deny what we feel is a distortion of what it means to be image bearers of God. To the degree that we are unable to express our emotions, we remain impaired in our ability to love God and others well. Next is dying to the wrong things the scripture is clear that we have to take up our cross and die to ourselves, but not our entire selves. Paul talks about the flesh. What he means is not the physical body, but our sinful nature, because if we're honest with ourselves, we're all a mix of good and bad, and the Lord wants to sift us, but he doesn't want to kill the good aspects of us. What gives us joy, what brings us within boundaries. He wants, as Psalm 37 says, to give us the desires of hearts, but sometimes we're not ready for that. And he is preparing us for that, but often in feeling shame, we can, can die to the wrong types of things. Next is denying the impact of the past on the present. To quote the author, the work of growing in Christ the fancy term is sanctification, does not mean we don't go back to the past as we press ahead to what God has for us. It actually demands we go back in order to break free of unhealthy and destructive patterns that prevent us from loving God the way he designed us, from loving God and from loving others. Scripture talks about being a new creation in Christ Jesus, of being born again, But the thing about being born again is sort of you have to grow up all over again. But you can't grow up all over again until you have dealt with the way you grew up the first time. And often, we want to be a new creation without dealing with the bad things in the old creation. But we have to have courage and deal with those things. Fifth is dividing the secular from the sacred. This is our, our canny ability to, to put our lives into compartments, to be hypocrites, and to not know it in ourselves. He gives us two examples of fictional characters named Jane and Ken. Jane yells at her husband, berating him for his lack of spiritual leadership with children. He walks away deflated and crushed. She walks away convinced that she has fought righteously for God's name. Ken has a disciplined devotional time with God each day before going to work, but then does not think of God's presence with him all through the day at work and when he returns to be with his wife and with his family. Six is doing for God instead of being with God. Work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things, such as our ego and our power and the need for approval and buying into the wrong idea that we cannot fail. When we work for God because of these things, our experience of the gospel falls off-center. We become human doings instead of human beings. Seventh is spiritualizing away conflict. Escazero says nobody likes conflict, yet conflict is everywhere from our law courts to our workplaces to our marriages, to our parenting, to our friendships. But perhaps the most destructive myth alive in the Christian community today is the belief that smoothing over our disagreements and sweeping them under the rug is part of what it means to follow Jesus. For this reason, churches and small groups and ministries and denominations and communities continue to experience the pain of all unresolved conflict. Ninth is covering over brokenness and weakness and fear. This is especially problematic when we are in leadership positions, may that be in our households, our jobs, or in the church. We think we have to cover over our weakness and our fear. But we have to look at the example of one of the greatest kings in Scripture, King David, who didn't see how far he was going until it was too late. He committed adultery, and he killed Uriah, the husband of the one he committed adultery with, Bathsheba. And the prophet Nathan confronted him, revealed his sin, and instead of denying it, he wrote it down in Psalm 51, for every church and faith community to remember that we need to confess our sin and to be held accountable, but often also to be offered forgiveness. Ninth is living without limits. To quote Scazzaro, the core spiritual issue here relates to our limits and our humanity. We are not God. We can't serve everyone. We are human. When Paul said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, the context was learning to be content in our circumstances. The strength he received from Christ was not the strength to change, deny, or defy his circumstances. It was the strength to be content in the midst of them, to surrender to God's loving will for him. Tenth and finally is judging other people's spiritual journeys. To quote Scazzaro, by failing to let others be themselves before God and move at their own pace, we'll inevitably project onto them our own discomfort and their cho- with their choices of the way they live, we end up eliminating them in our minds, trying to make others like us, or abandoning them altogether with a who cares indifference, and sometimes su- the silence of unconcern can be more deadly than hate. Like Jesus said, unless I take the log out of my own eye, knowing that I have huge blind spots, I am dangerous. I must see the damage sin has done to every part Of who I am before I can attempt to remove the log from my neighbor's eye. And as we look at Paul's journey in this chapter. As he says who he was and who he became in Christ. We can see the power of the resurrection. Challenging his crummy spirituality. This was a guy who just wasn't dangerous spiritually. He was dangerous literally. He helped stoned the first martyr of the church, Stephen, to death. He was grabbing people out of houses of worship and taking them to be tried. And yet God turned him around by revealing the risen Christ, the power of being a son of God to him. And that helped him get through all, I would say, nine, but he, he had a hard time with the last one, judging other people's spirituality because he judged and was harsh with his opponents, the Judaizers, that said if you wanted to follow God, you had to be circumcised, which they were not correct. But but Paul called them dogs and mutilators. Dog was a common insult that the Jewish people used to basically everyone else around them. And there were no pet dogs back then. They meant that you were feral that you were uneducated, that you ate dead bodies. It was an insult. And yet Paul, who had grown up all his life using that insult, now uses it against his own people. That simply isn't right. And that's not something that Jesus would do. Or so I thought until I remembered that's something that Jesus did. As I was saying in Mark chapter 7, Jesus was ministering and teaching and healing his people. For first, he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But as Mark says, Jesus gets tired. He accepted our limitations when he took on human form. And he went outside of his country. That's how busy he was. He couldn't find any rest in his own country. So he went to a Gentile region and to a house where he thought no one could find him. But this Syrophoenician woman, who would be from modern day Syria, found him and said, My daughter is being oppressed by a demon. Help her. And he fundamentally, Jesus said, It's not right to give the feast of the children of Israel to the little dogs. And the woman replied, Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs can eat the crumbs on the master's table. Now, this is one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture. And people make all sorts of explanations as to why Jesus did this. But maybe all these complicated explanations are to negate the simplest explanation that he was tired. We don't want to accept that because of our own negative and crummy spirituality. That we we, we think that even Jesus could live without limits and that he couldn't express negative feelings when he took on our flesh and our limitations. And he would have sinned if he had sent that woman away after insulting her. But he realized what he had done. And he had a broken and contrite heart, as he did from his birth. And he decided not to feed her crumbs. The time of the nations hadn't come yet but he knew that it would come and he would not treat her like a dog. You know, Psalm 23 says that the Lord is our shepherd and he has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And that table is big enough for our enemies because his grace is big enough even for our enemies. But to eat of that feast, to eat of that feast. We have to stop accepting crumbs from others. We have to stop being crummy to others. We have to repent of our crummy spirituality. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us stand and affirm our